Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Burroughs Furniture is built for the way you live. From ensuring easy assembly and disassembly to honoring highly requested new colors for their award-winning seating, they always have their customers in mind. Their modular seating is made out of durable materials to last and grow with you. And with Burrow, you always get fast, free shipping. Get up to 60% off during Burrow's Memorial Day sale at burrow.com slash ACAST. That's burrow.com slash ACAST. Burrow.com slash ACAST. Welcome to Talking Business, a podcast produced in Melbourne, Australia. The podcast is available on the ACAST site, mine website, the Apple Podcast Store, or wherever you go to your podcasts. Or you can get it at the Business Acumen website at www.businessacumen.biz. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business from my website, leongetler.com. I'm Leon Gettler. My job is to review and monitor the week's news in business, finance and economics. I bring it all to you every week. This is episode number 41 in our series for 2022, and today's date is Friday, November the 11th. First, I'll be talking to Andy Cunningham, Senior Regional Director for Australia New Zealand at Autodesk. We'll talk about automating industries like manufacturing and construction. And I'll be talking to KPMG economist Sarah Hunter about the RBA's latest rate hike. But now let's talk to Andy Cunningham. Now, Andy, what what are you talking about uh, with uh, construction and manufacturing now transforming? Mm -hmm. How does that work? Look, I mean, both industries are in different phases, I guess, Leon. You know, if you have a look at, if you can compare the two, and I I use this quite often, they're both on the the end of the spectrum as far as flexibility versus control. If you think about manufacturing, manufacturing a car, the last thing you want to do is have variables, right? So you, you design a car, you make a lot of them and you manufacture, you know, minimal variables, color, trim, that's something, but it's basically, you know, repeat, 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 repeat. And that's the way it's been done since, you know, since the Model T. Construction's at the very end of that spectrum, the other end of that spectrum, where a building is largely a one-off, especially building a project home. But if you think about construction, the buildings, the opera house, or any of the buildings, it's largely a one-off, you know, so you're creating a one-off, you know, you're constructing a one-off thing. So they're the two ends of, of the spectrum, you know, in their origination. Manufacturing don't change a lot building you're changing every single one they both need to transform for different reasons manufacturing needs to transform because pre-pandemic buyer demand has changed where i don't just want the model t in in black i actually want my prius to be in this color this particular shade of blue and i want this trim and i want my kid's name to be on the side of their sneakers and i'm only going to pay an extra five dollars for it not a, a an, an absorbent cost so demand is is changed now the manufacturing side so we need to put flexibility into the manufacturing environment to allow for that that demand. Again, at the other end of the spectrum, we need to take some of the chaos out of the construction site where it doesn't have to be a once-off. Yes, the building itself may be a once-off, but the elements of that building need to be repeatable, a bit like manufacturing. So how do we cut down waste? How do we cut down you know, errors? All those sorts of elements. And we can get into some of the details of that, but through the construction process where there's more repeatable elements of a, of a construction process, even if it's in process or indeed some of the modular elements that are coming into it. So that's why they need 
need to change. Yeah, manufacturing needs to get a little more flexibility into it and that that's happening due to demand and construction needs to tighten up due, due to the waste and risk and everything else that, that comes with you know, everything being a once-off. So they, they both need to take the best elements of each other. So what sort of transformation are we talking about? Process most definitely and, and embracing digital. You know, it's it's funny, manufacturing, I guess, embraced the digital element quite quite some time ago as far as using you know, digital controls, design, CAD and CAM, you know, because computer-aided design, computer-aided manufacturing has been prevalent in the manufacturing space for, for a long time. And even, you, know, you go back to the Industrial Revolution, some form of technology actually sort of sparked that in the manufacturing space. So they're sort of early adopters. Construction is, is you know, on, on the other end of the spectrum, is, is a very late adopter of, of technology and digitalization. So the elements are different. I think, you know, the... The flexibility of, of design in the manufacturing space and rapid prototyping, rapid changing, rapid you know, elements of customization and bringing down the, the scale of, of the footprint required in factories, et cetera, is sort of what's moving in the manufacturing space. Whereas in construction, literally a few years ago, I was in Japan and at a large, a large, very large company, let's leave it at that, in, in Japan, mega projects. I asked for the latest project on, on their, their flagship and they literally went and grabbed the A0 plot off the wall and went, here's the plan for our you know, our mega project. And so construction is just so, so late in the process that it's, it's adoption is there to a large degree in, in some elements of the construction, but it's taking that to the field so that you don't have the guys and girls in the hard hats still working on bits of paper that are five minutes old or worst case, you know, three months old and way out of date. Well, I mean, we've just had the jobs and skills summit. Mm-hmm. And uh, what strikes me with all this automation is that, well, one of the criticisms of it has been that it will put people out of jobs. Mm-hmm. You can't have a robot laying bricks in a construction mm-hmm. centre. You can't have someone on a machine constantly for manufacturing. So what would be your response to that? It'll change jobs more, more than it'll put people out of jobs. So it may change the nature of work. But I mean, you know, what's driving that even now is, you know, is, is resource shortages. You know, you can't get enough bricklayers. You can't get enough, you know, trades. You can't get enough of, of these elements there. So, but I think more holistically in the longer term, even as we come out of this sort of crazy three, three years that we've been in and we sort of start to normalise on supply chains and those sorts of elements. The automation and the digitization of the robot bricklayer, as you say, means you won't have someone sitting out there eight hours a day in the sun, busting their back laying bricks. You'll have someone programming, you'll have someone controlling, you'll have someone overseeing those different processes of, of that. So it will change jobs and it will upskill jobs rather than reduce jobs overall. So you're saying is this more potential to upskill those people? Absolutely, yeah. And that's why I think, you know, the you spoke about construction and there's a tripartisan agreement that's that's finally been reached between the ACA, the Australian Construction Association, government and, and industry and unions that is that is looking at those sorts of elements, you know, because it's not just the commercial element and it's not just government and it's not just the the industry bodies it needs to be a holistic sort of viewpoint with skills in mind you know that's, that's one one leg of the stool i guess but skills have to be you know, in mind and how do we actually take those skills to the individuals because otherwise the guy or girl is going to be out of a job if they don't need to physically lay the brick anymore and there's no access to training access to skills access to transformation in their own you know careers and taking the training to them as opposed to having to go sit in the classroom at you know the local tech like days gone by if we don't provide that then they will go stagnant so it, it needs it's multiple elements that, that need to bring that to the individual so they can actually upskill how do we bring the training to those people i mean you can't send them off to a classroom does no. it have a boot camp or, or send them off to boot camps how does it work yeah i think yeah there's, there's different elements of it training or upskilling has changed as i said you don't just go off to a classroom these days in general you know we've seen that sort of you know back in the 90s you'd go sit there in your, in your training room with your computer and you'd learn you know how to use windows and, and these days that's that's largely gone so it's in place training that 
that we see. You know, initially, yes, it's going to be transformation because if someone's used to literally you know, mixing concrete and, and laying bricks, they need to have initial sort of skill shift in, in that regard. But how do you extract their knowledge from that and actually you know, place that in a digital sense and use those skills in a digital sense? So there is some, I guess, you know, consultative kind of training required and initially. But what we're seeing with with you know, sort of training and learning beyond that is it needs to be in place. It needs to be as it's happening. So you know, we're seeing a lot of you know, in-place workshops, but even in-place digitally uh, using some of the digital skills that we've got, digital tools that we've got, where the product or the learning environment will watch what you're doing and suggest and provide you know, learning learning experiences in situ, in context, you know, as you're actually trying to complete the task. So it's not like you just go to the training course and then come back and forget 90% of it and try and, try and put some of it into place on Monday. It's got to be small bites as you need it. That would suggest quite some artificial intelligence in the training. Would yep. that be right? Yep, definitely. Definitely. So... You know, there's a, I mean, if you look at the, the Autodesk products, you know, we we understand our products just like any vendor would. You know, we understand what how to drive our products, how to how to work our products. And so the AI is largely there in the the R and D of the product itself, the you know, the knowledge of the product itself. But there has to be an element of of looking for repeated mistakes or, or you know, greater better paths to outcomes. And that's where the AI I think you're talking about will will derive in the learning environment that will actually sort of watch and yeah, you know, with choice, obviously it's not like a big brother thing but you know with, with choice and, and with control we'll watch what you're doing and provide better ways to get to that outcome so how do how have people taken to this how's uh, the bricklayer taken to this how is the machine operator taken to it's still it's still emerging leon and, and that's what the the construction industry is early days in this journey you know it's it's way late to the party and, and early days so the initial reaction and rightly so is i'm out of a job and and th- th- not now but yeah, over time, if you roll the tape forward, you think the machines are coming and it's it's sort of science fiction, then you could think you're out of a job. And that's the initial sort of knee-jerk reaction. But it's early days. We still need to work with industry, work with government, work with the bricklayers, for example, as, as one example of that. But yeah, there's other elements as well. Again, in construction, you, you look at modular construction. It's not necessarily replacing the people. It's replacing where they do the work. So we're constructing in a factory and we're actually bringing that module to site and then just installing it as opposed to mixing concrete and laying fittings and fixtures and those sorts of elements. So not everything is revolutionary, but there is certainly transformative elements of construction that, that we're looking at uh, bringing into place. And the same would apply to manufacturing. Yes. Yeah. But I mean, manufacturing is more that controlled environment, I, I guess, anyway. So you're not you're not outside in the on, on the site, I guess, doing those once off things. You know, there's efficiencies in manufacturing, most definitely. You know, we're seeing manual process become digital, but the skills are, and the disciplines are still there. So if someone knows how to manually you know run a lathe that person will you know those skills you can't replace you know so you, we need to capture those skills not actually dis- discard those skills we need to capture and harness the old ways and 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 interface those into you know into a, a modern environment yeah and yeah a lot of the work that that i've done in my in my past roles at autodesk in japan was because of the aging workforce in japan and the aging engineering body of knowledge in japan they went digital one of the elements was going digital to capture that body of knowledge before retirement years and sunset years that was gone so i don't think we're that at that extreme of the aging population that, that they were facing in japan but that was a driver so again it's not about just shipping out the old and replacing with the new it's capturing the the old ways and retaining that knowledge what's exciting about this is it so it's not only applies to construction and manufacturing but it could apply to broader industry as well mm-hmm. broader industry could learn from it 
as well. Would yeah. you agree with that? Definitely, definitely. And I mean, I think you know, you, know, you asked initially about about digitization and 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 what sort of drivers were there, and you know, the elements of the past three years, the pandemic and the craziness that we've all gone through as a result of that was sort of a force function on that. You know, yeah, you know, there's a couple of drivers in construction or across industry in general, but you know, what we've just gone through and now the resultant sort of pressure on supply chains and workforces, that's forcing every industry. You know, whether you're a restaurant that's looking for front of house staff or you're a yeah, multi-billion dollar organization, resources are a challenge at, at either end. Um, we're only just starting to see immigration come back and and overseas, you know, workforce sort of come back to Australia. Before then, as I'm sure everyone that's been on your show has alluded to, resources are precious. Whether you're looking for a salesperson, an engineer, you know, a a, a waiter and everything in between, it's, it's precious. So everyone's been forced to, to look at their industry. You put supply chain pressure on top of that and that's what's just you know, massively driven it. Again, whether you're supplying vehicles, whether you're building vehicles, whether you're needing timber or aggregates on your construction site, everything's had to be looked at because of those drivers. Which is why automation is not going to get rid of jobs, but will actually help create. Exactly. It may change them, but it will, there's, you know, it's, we're not going to replace the people at, at all. And I mean, I mean even... You know, we have conversations around generative design, which is a you know, almost an, an AI technology using you know the power of cloud to create designs. Yeah, you know, and that could be how do you create? You know, there's one project we did where we created a better panel in an Airbus plane that was lighter and stronger, etc. Lovely. Or it could be how do, you, how do you create a better chair, or how do you create a better you know saddle on a construction site? You still need the the person behind the keyboard with the with the design intent, with the intelligence, what have you, to to work with you know the the capabilities of of the machines, for want of a better word. So. Again, generative design that you know, we see coming through both on form and function sides, you still need the, the person there, whether that's the elderly skilled engineer or designer or whether that's the, you know, the young up and coming graduate just out of university, the person still needs to be there making choices, making design intent changes, what, what have you. Well, Andy, that's all fascinating. And I'm sure everyone will be fascinated to hear that. Thank you very much for your time. No, really appreciate it. Thanks, Leon. And now let's talk to KPMG economist, Sarah Hunter. Well, Sarah, the RBA increased interest rates by not much but now comers to 2.85 percent and uh, we're expecting more rate rises in December. Yes I think that's right and isn't it uh, an interesting time that we live in where a uh, 25 basis point move is considered a not very big increase in rates normally that would be the only increase we'd be talking about. Uh, Yes I think that's right I do expect them to go again by another 25 basis points uh, in December so it'll take them to 3.1 percent for the end of this year and I think more uh, from next year as well certainly through the first uh, few meetings so potentially uh, getting up to well, 3.5, maybe 3.6%, something like that. Depends what they do with that hanging point one that they've got in their back pocket at the moment. Right, okay. So you're expecting further rate rises in the mm-hmm. first quarter of next yes. year? Yes, absolutely. I mean, I think the data at the moment is still coming through pretty strong in terms of the activity levels and, and momentum through the economy. I also think that they'll be uh, looking at the inflation data, that they will be not concerned as in it's not un- unexpected, but they'll be certainly monitoring very c- closely the fact that those inflationary pressures are broadening across the economy uh, and they're becoming more domestic rather than externally focused. In fact, what we're likely to see as we go uh, through the first few months of 2023 is some of those external factors that have been driving inflation, fuel prices, for instance, on an inflation rate basis, they're going to drop back quite sharply. So fuel price increases from early 22 to early 23, for instance, could be close to zero if you look at the year on year difference. But that's not going to be much comfort to the RBA. They're going to be very concerned about what's happening domestically 
obviously, and, the, and those domestic pressures. Right, okay. But uh, they originally said that inflation would be up to 7.75%. Now it's 8%. Mm, yeah, I mean, I think that that's, I mean, obviously that's not too different a forecast. And I think that a lot of that really is coming through from some unexpected shocks, things like food prices and the most recent floods. And we know that that's now starting to have an impact in the supermarkets. The RBA back in August obviously couldn't see that um, and weren't anticipating that. So I think the near term is actually playing out more or less as they expected. I think more interesting on their inflation forecast is the higher for longer uh, that they've got through the back end of 23 and through 2024. I think that that's where the, the much bigger revisions are and, and they say reflect uh, that change in their view on those domestic pressures and the sort of pass through and the, the uh, what's happening within Australia rather than what's happening as a result of global shocks and, and shocks like the floods, which are you know, exogenous to to the economy, if you like. So if we're predicting rate rises for next year, where do you see it peaking at? Well, uh, there's a good question. Uh, I mean, I certainly I think that uh, at least three and a half percent and possibly a bit higher than that. What will be really interesting is the dynamic and how the RBA ends up sitting relative to other central banks. I mean, I think it is still the case that uh, the RBA are likely to peak at a lower rate than, say, the Fed. I think there's the sort of demand supply mismatch internally is much less pronounced here than it is in the US and that uh, and that does mean that we can peak at a lower rate. Also, you have to keep in mind that the responsiveness to the economy here, it is likely to be more responsive than the US. Uh, for instance, uh, inflation, uh, sorry, mortgage rates in the US are, are typically not tied to interest rate moves because most people have a fixed mortgage rather than a variable. In Australia, it's the opposite way around. So there's a few dynamics that play through our economy that make us more vulnerable, if you like, or more responsive actually to interest rate moves. And so this also means the RBA can move by less. So if I put those two things together, I do think that we'll peak at a lower rate, but comfortably uh, above where we are right now, I think, you know, maybe somewhere between three and a half and four percent. And we'll see where we land uh, in the first half of next year. Well, the Fed uh, increased rates by 0.75 percent. Mm. We're expecting to mm. keep going like that. But what's interesting is that the other central banks are diverging from that. It's right, right, we see that right around the world. Mm, yeah, and I think that this is where um, the, the the country-specific factors are going to start to come into play. So a lot of the inflationary pressures that we've seen this year in particular have been global in nature. The, obviously, the conflict in Ukraine and the fallout that's had has been particularly pronounced in Europe, but it has spilled over everywhere. Similarly, you know, with food prices as well, that is partly related to conflict in Ukraine as well, but it's been a global phenomenon as, as much as a local phenomenon. I think we're now starting to see some of the differences across countries play through and and they are really quite markedly different for instance in the US GDP this year has barely changed they've essentially stagnated on a broad basis employment is yet to get back to pre-COVID levels in Australia it's very different we've had pretty robust GDP growth this year and we've had robust employment growth as well so there are some really um, interesting country specific dynamics and that will give you then divergence and, and obviously has implications for exchange rates for local stock markets all of these these factors then start to come into play so you can we can lump the central banks together and we have generally up to now but i think we're going to start to see them responding differently as they consider their local factors as well as global conditions what's what was interesting in the rba statement of monetary policy at the end of last week was that that they were talking about all sorts of imponderables and unknowns Mm. and that was that was quite scary (laughs) 
reading <laughs> well there's a lot there is a lot of uncertainty right now about how things play through and I think uh, sitting on on both sides of the ledger as it were there's there it could be that households are, are pretty resilient that we are able to wear if you like higher mortgage payments and some of the cost of living pressures I think what's really interesting is that the, where those um, inflationary pressures have materialized thus far they've been to some extent a little bit targeted for instance you know new residential construction costs um, if you're building your own home at the moment or doing a renovation you're very much aware of those but for most people that's not the case because most people aren't doing that uh, if you strip those out of the the current inflation measure for instance you actually get a headline inflation rate of about six percent which isn't too far off what's been the uh, the growth rate of household income so actually for a lot of households in, their incomes and inflation has kind of kept pace with one another so um, at the moment there's there is a lot of imponderables around well that dynamic is changing how might that play through for households for instance there's also clearly a lot of uncertainty in the global economy, not just around uh, the conflict in Ukraine and how that might play through, but what's happening in China and what that might mean, um, and the you know the responsiveness of economies globally to this rate tightening cycle. I think it's worth keeping in mind it's the first rate tightening cycle we've seen in many countries for many many years, not more than ten years. Economies look different to the way they looked before. They're responding in a different way, and as economists, we are learning about this. And I think the RBA really signalling that too. So there are uncertainties but they could be upside uncertainties as much as downside uncertainties worth keeping in mind and of course the central bankers are monitoring the situation daily so they are responding um, when their meetings roll around and those meetings roll around fairly quickly. What's interesting is that the the RBA statement saying that inflation mightn't come back to the target band till what 2025 Mm, and uh, that that was really quite striking. It it is I agree I think what's going to be really crucial there is uh, well two aspects of that that I find really interesting and again, uh, we'll see how this plays through. One is uh, the dynamics around wages and wages growth and seeing that come through. And it was it was interesting to get um, their commentary from their liaison program. When one of the questions they asked to businesses is, well, you know, what is your average reset of base pay, which is a sort of core inf- wage inflation measure, if you like, and that coming through at sort of three and a half percent in the private sector. But we know it's a little bit less for many people on EBAs and, and in the government sector in particular. So probably suggest wages growth is going to go over the top of three percent but you know approaching three and a half percent over the near term does that continue to lift or does that hold that's one source of uncertainty the other is around price setting behavior from businesses themselves are they not only are they passing on input costs but are they actually um, you know using variation in their margins if they've got strong demand are they are they looking to sort of push prices in response to that and and does that continue and do we get a new dynamic there coming through that then sort of repeats itself the forecasts they seem to the rba seem to be suggesting well they do think there's a little bit of that coming through but that it, it's going to you know through high rate rises and the dampening of momentum that will sort of slow things down again but we will see we'll see how much it comes through and it it could through, come through stronger and that will be more of a challenge for the rba and we'll suggest they'll take the cash rate higher and they'll be spring is my favorite time to start a new workout routine with the weather warming up it feels easier to get into the rhythm of things whether you have 20 minutes or an hour for a pilates class or outdoor guided walk Peloton has everything you need to help you get going. Get a head start on summer with Peloton at OnePeloton.com. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. 
real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Amazing for longer through next year. Equally, maybe they hit the pause and then we see that sort of those pressures starting to ease a bit. And then they, they don't have to take the cash rate higher and actually they get inflation back to target a bit sooner than they're anticipating. That is also possible. So it's uncertain, uh, but they're clearly responding to the risk of inflation staying above target for an extended period of time. And they're committed to that. And that was a strong message from them. And that's what we should expect. So if the data doesn't go their way, if we don't get signs that things are starting to ease next year, we should expect them to go further with the cash rate. But uh, indeed, if inflation does stay higher, it would put pressure on businesses to pass on those costs. Well, I think they we're already seeing them do that so for instance in the September inflation day so one of the most interesting bits of that for me was that in the household services category personal services category where a lot of workers will be paid the national minimum wage we saw a step up a step change in the price uh, paid for those services that was linked back to that national wage increase so uh, that was very immediate right the national wage increased on pretty much first of July and then the September quarter inflation print the first time we measure it in the data recorded that increase so we can see those businesses are passing on those cost increases that was obviously a wage cost but there are other costs that are being passed through as well for instance material costs in the construction sector so businesses are definitely are passing on those costs and the the question is if they continue to do that and then you know look at um you know stretching their margins then that's the the response the rba will be paying attention to and we'll be looking to see how responsive that is and, and how quickly the cooling of of the economy the cooling of demand that they're trying to generate with interest rate rises that they are generating with interest rate rises we can already see it coming through how quickly that gets into those broader price pressures that are coming through the system so uh, basically looking ahead to 2023 there's a whole lot of uncertainties we just have to wait and see how all this pans out we do i mean i think that we can be i think there are some things we can expect to see in the data i think we can expect to see inflation staying above target i think that would be very surprising if that's not true i think we can expect to see growth momentum starting to ease um and that that in and of itself will mean that capacity utilization and other measures of the economy and how tight things are, the labor market, how much you know extra work businesses can do, all of those things are going to ease. So the unemployment rate starting to lift ever so slightly from a, obviously very record lows, capacity utilization for firms starting to come back down from its now record highs. All of those things I think we can expect to see coming through next year. The question is, how quickly do those things mean that inflationary pressures start to ease? And we see that through the month-on-month data that we now get and what that means for the RBA. That's where the uncertainty is, that link between easing on the demand side, which is, as I say, we're already seeing it in some of the most responsive parts of the economy, and, and I think we'll see it uh, more widespread. How quickly that gets into those inflationary pressures, that's the key, key question. For econ- you know, central bankers around the world, many countries are trying to ultimately ask the same question and get to the, to the answer, and that's what I'll be looking for next year. Well, Sarah, thank you very much for your time. Thank you. So what's happening in the news? Well, Meta, the parent company of Facebook and Instagram, is expected to begin large-scale layoffs this week that will affect thousands of employees. It follows job cuts at Twitter in the past week, which hit about half of that social networking giant's staff. Less than a fortnight ago, Meta reported that its profit more than halved to US $4.4 billion, that's Aussie $6.9 billion, in the third quarter, from $9.2 billion a year earlier. The drop in profitability is largely driven by the billions 
Meta is spending to, to build a future version of the internet called the Metaverse that likely remains years away. On a conference call last month to discuss its earnings result for the third quarter, CEO Mark Zuckerberg said that he expects the company to end 2023 as either roughly the same size or even a slightly smaller organisation than we are today. The possible cuts come as tightened advertiser budgets and Apple's iOS privacy changes have weighed on Meta's core business. Once boasting a market capitalisation of more than $1 trillion last year, Meta is now valued at a quarter of that at about $250 billion. And Twitter Inc. has begun rolling out software updates to charge users $7.99 a month to mark their accounts with a blue check, part of Elon Musk's early efforts to boost revenue a little more than a week after taking ownership of the social media network. Details of the latest software versions began appearing Saturday on Apple Inc.'s App Store, promising new features added to the social media company's previous subscription service dubbed Twitter Blue. Saturday's update marks the first significant product change since Mr Musk took over and capstones a week at the company that included widespread layoffs, chaos and confusion as he raced to put his mark on things. It was unclear Saturday when the updated service would would take effect for all users. In a bid to make Twitter less dependent on advertising, which makes up 90% of its sales, Mr Musk had been hinting that he was leaning towards an $8 a month subscription offering. Saturday's change applies to Apple users in the US, Canada, Australia, New Zealand and the UK. According to Platformer, Musk had discussed putting Twitter behind a paywall that would require a fee from every user. And Twitter Australia has been left a shell of its former self, with staff in its government relations, communications, marketing and news curation divisions almost entirely laid off as part of global job cuts at the social network. The sales team, which tries to bring advertisers to the platform, was least affected. The Australian e-safety commissioner, Julie Inman-Grant, who once headed public policy for Twitter in the region, panned the global job cuts, which have laid off 50% of its employees. But a few days later, Twitter is rich out to dozens of employees who lost their jobs and asked them to return. Apparently, some were fired by mistake and necessary to build the new features that Musk envisions. On Sunday, AEDT, Twitter began rolling out its plans to let anyone receive a blue tick, which has long indicated a verified account to stop impersonators, for US $7.99, that's $12.40 Aussie a month. Elon Musk, Twitter's new billionaire owner, said on the site that people with existing blue ticks who declined to pay would lose them within a couple of months. The paid blue tick service is not yet available in Australia, but is expected within days, with Musk saying the rest of the world would follow. Prominent Australian Twitter users are unlikely to pay. Australian Council of Trade Union Secretary Sally McManus, who has 126,000 followers, said she would not. Labor MP Julian Hill, who has almost 50,000, said he was unsure, but concerned by events around Twitter. Former 730 New South Wales presenter Quentin Dempster, who has 55,000, and followers said he did not want to pay Musk, and leaders at most media organisations have indicated they would be unwilling to pay for their journalist ticks, though Musk has decreased the asking price since. And consumer confidence has plunged below the levels seen during the global financial crisis, causing a record number of households to slash their Christmas spending plans. The widely watched Westpac Melbourne Institute Consumer Sentiment Index dropped 6.9% in November and is now only above COVID-19 pandemic lows. Consumer confidence is at its lowest level since the 1990s recession, excluding a low point early in the pandemic. Confidence levels fell dramatically after the RBA's latest interest rate rise in a speech by its governor. And Qantas is in discussions to import sustainable aviation fuel into Australia as, as, what, will be, as what will be the world's largest production site used for cooking oil and animal fat based fuel near its completion in Singapore. Sustainable aviation fuel currently accounts for only 0.1% of all aviation fuel used worldwide, but most major airlines including Qantas back an industry goal to get to 10% by 2030. 
2.30. Qantas is working with Airbus to kickstart local supply and is also looking for imports. It currently uses a blend of SAF and conventional jet fuel on some flights out of London and has plans to do so for US outbound flights. BP supplies sustainable aviation fuel to Qantas in the UK and it's understood the Australian airline is talking to various suppliers in different ports to consider suppliers nearer to home. And Prime Minister Anthony Albanese has begun talks with independents and business groups and Workplace Minister, Relations Minister Tony Burke has pledged to consider more amendments as the government intensifies efforts to get its industrial relations legislation through the Senate by December the 1st. But crucial Senate crossbencher David Pocock, who has not spoken to the Prime Minister since July, warned he was not a rubber stamp as he outlined more concerns during a meeting with Mr Burke and again requested controversial elements of the bill be delayed beyond Christmas. He wants a common interest stream of multi-employer bargaining which will allow the process to be extended to all businesses excised from the bill so it can be properly scrutinised. Under the current proposal, businesses with a few of them 15 employers would be exempt from multi-employer bargaining, but Senator Pocock wants that defined as 15 full-time equivalents, allowing more smaller businesses with an array of casuals and part-timers to be exempt. With the ACTU warning further concessions will render the bill inoperable, the government will use its numbers to push the bill through the lower house on Thursday, so it can be ready for Senate debate when Parliament resumes for the final fortnight on November 21st. The nine lower house independents, including the six Teals, harbour similar concerns as Senator Pocock and voted with the Coalition to try to avoid a time limit on debate imposed by the government. The government used its numbers to, to defeat the push. Although the Teals' votes don't count, the government is keen to have their imprimatur for the Secure Jobs Better Pay Bill. Mr Albanese sought to assuage concerns during a meeting with the Lower House Independents on Tuesday. And employers must train managers on how to solve mental health issues and give employees more say over how they do their jobs if Australia is to avoid a doubling in the number of workers' mental health compensation claims by 2030. The warnings come from a new report released on Wednesday by the Committee for Economic Development of Australia, which urged employers to prioritise mental health to the same degree as physical health, and said popular measures such as free yoga sessions and fruit boxes did little to improve employee well-being. Mm. Claims doubled by 2030 under the moderate growth scenario, and almost tripled by 2030 under the high growth scenario. The trends are even more concerning when, when looking at the cost of claims, the report said, adding that the median time of work for mental health claims was 20 seven weeks compared to seven weeks for all serious claims. Median compensation costs per claim for mental health conditions grew from 14300 in 2001 to $45,900 in 2018-19, the report said. If recent trends continued, median costs per claim could triple in real terms by 2030. Report author and OEDA senior economist Cassandra Windsor said mental health claims are typically more expensive than physical health claims, as they are typically more complex. Ms Windsor said training bosses to manage mental health involving employers in the design of their jobs and introducing organisation-wide mental health strategies were three effective measures that employers should pursue. This was more effective than easy stuff like free yoga and fruit boxes. And skilled occupation lists could be axed and hundreds of sub- visa subcategories slash to make way for a demand-driven immigration system where businesses have a greater role in determining what jobs are in short supply. Home Affairs Minister Claire O'Neill says every idea is on the table as Labor launches a biggest shake-up to the immigration system in decades on Monday amid a historic worker shortage. Ms O'Neill says an overhaul of the Byzantine mess of rules and processes is badly needed. Leading economies ramp up the fight for global talent, naming 
three policy and business experts to review the immigration system ahead of the May 2023 federal budget. Unions and industry are expected to play a key role in the review, which has been tasked with finding ways to protect workers from exploitation. Former Public Service Chief Martin Parkinson, University of Adelaide Law Professor and Temporary Labor and Migration Expert Joanna Howe, and former Deloitte partner John Azarius will present recommendations from the review to the Albanese government by February, allowing proposals to be considered for the May 2023 budget. And Australia's number three lender, Westpac, reported a 1.4% drop in annual profit, hurt by pressure on margins from intense competition in home lending in the first half and a charge related to the sale of its life insurance unit. And Medibank won't pay any ransom to the hacker that stole all its customer data after revealing almost 500,000 health claims have been accessed. Australia's largest health insurer says the names, dates of birth, address, phone numbers and email addresses of its 9.7 million former and current customers have been accessed along with the Medicare and passport numbers of some customers. But Medibank Chief Executive David Koska said the hacker probably couldn't give the data back even if they paid a ransom fee and paying up could instead give other criminals an incentive to do the same. The hacker accessed health claims of around 160,000 Medibank customers, around 300,000 claims from offshoot AHM customers and around 20,000 international customers. No credit card or banking details were accessed. The insurer, which continues working with the federal government and other agencies, has also launched an external review into the incident. And Australia's largest private health insurance, Medibank Private, faces its first class action over the hacking incident that exposed the personal information of 9.7 million current and former customers. It comes as the threats have emerged on the dark web to release the customer data. Bannister Law, Class Actions and Centennial Lawyers said they've joined forces to investigate the serious data breach of this group, which comprises 5.1 million Medibank customers, around 2.8 million customers from the group's budget AHM business and around 1.8 million international customers. Other class actions are likely. Morris Blackburn, which has already launched a class action style claim against Optus for its recent data breach, has said previously that it is monitoring the situation. While both hacks are similar in size, with just under 10 million Optus customers affected, the Medibank incident is far more serious as a private health data of hundreds of thousands of Medibank customers was stolen. Criminals claiming to have stolen the personal information of about 10 million Australians from Medibank, including sensitive health data, are claiming that they were lucid in the next 24 hours in a post on a website linked to Russia-backed cybercriminal group R-Revil. And Crown Melbourne has been fined $120 million by the gambling regulator over breaches of its responsible service obligations. The Victorian Gambling Casino Control Commission imposed the fines after it found the casino failed to prevent gambling harm by allowing customers to gamble for long periods without a break, said customers were sometimes allowed to gamble for more than 24 hours at a time. It also found the casino failed to comply with the statutory declaration to stop patrons using plastic picks and other devices to simulate automatic play on poker machines. The regulator says Crown is on probation with a decision pending whether Crown is suitable to continue holding its licence. And Star Entertainment will fight a second class action in the Victorian Supreme Court, with Morris Blackburn filing a shareholder claim against Casino Giant. It follows the hit lead of Slater and Gordon, which filed a similar class action in March that alleged the company misled the market, breached continuous obligation laws, and wiped billions of dollars from the company's value. Morris Blackburn's claims are largely the same, relating to representations made by the company between March 2016 and March 2022 that the firm alleges were misleading or deceptive. And Snowy 
Hydro's giant expansion is a year behind schedule, and the official budget has jumped by $800 million to $5.9 billion, the latest crunch for an energy project deemed critical to replace coal in the power grid. Roger Whitby, Snowy's acting chief executive, told a parliamentary hearing on Monday that the government-owned energy operator remained hopeful of reducing the delay, but the setback could imperil the target of first power by mid-2025 and delivering the facility by early 2026. Any delay will also add to risks after the grid operator warned of worsening forecasts reliability in New South Wales in 2026 and 27 should it not hit the original deadline. The budget has jumped $5.9 billion from the original $5.1 billion forecast, according to Mr Whitby. It is unclear whether the higher cost reflects a $400 million contingency and $100 million in environmental offset, or whether it factors in any exposure after the builders file claims for more than $2.2 billion in cost overruns. The details, disclosed at a Senate committee hearing, followed an omission from Snowy Chairman David Knox that Energy Minister Chris Bowen had raised concerns about the tone and communication style of ousted Chief Executive Paul Broad amid tensions over a plan to transform its Hunter Valley gas plant into a green hydrogen facility. Mr Whitby told the Senate hearing the company could not yet estimate the Snowy Hydro 2.0 project's final budget and completion date with any certainty, but confirmed the COVID-19 pandemic had put its contractors, the Future Generation joint venture including Italy's WeBuild and struggling West Australian contractor Clough, badly behind schedule. And National Australia Bank has been chastised by the Federal Court and Corporate Regulator for not fixing a problem that resulted in customers being overcharged fees for more than two years after it had been made aware of it. NAB's misconduct was unconscionable and a breach of its Australian Financial Services licensee duties to act fairly and honestly, the Federal Court said on Monday. The Australian Securities Investments Commission sued NAB in February 2021, alleging it had overcharged 4,874 personal banking and 913 business banking customers a total of $365,454 in periodic payment fees over four years. These were $1.80 for periodic payments to other NAB accounts and $5.30 for payments to accounts at another bank. Overall, the offences took place over a longer period of time and resulted in overcharging in the multiple millions of dollars. Over 12 years, 1.6 million transactions were hit with the wrong fees. NAB has paid around $8.3 million in remediation to affected customers. Federal Court Judge Roger Derrington said the bank displayed serious apathy towards its customers' continuing lack of knowledge and acted in its own self-interest by continuing to operate a system it knew was wrongfully deducting the fees from early 2017. And those hoping to get a new iPhone for Christmas will likely be left disappointed, as Apple reveals it is experiencing production disruptions. Tightening COVID-19 restrictions are impacting output at Apple's main assembling facility in Shenzhou, China. The facility is currently operating at significantly reduced capacity, the tech giant said in the state. Customers will experience longer wait times to receive their new products. The world's largest iPhone factory, owned by Foxconn, was locked down for a week on November the 2nd, setting back production of the tech product. The wait time for a new iPhone 14 or iPhone 14 Max is currently four to five weeks, according to Apple's website, with clicking collect options unavailable for most stores. China is taking a dynamic clearing approach to curb rising COVID-19 case numbers, with restrictions including lockdowns, quarantining and rigorous testing. The country is reporting higher numbers of new infections, with significant portions of those in Zhengzhou, where major plants are located. China recorded its highest daily tally of new cases in six months on Sunday, with 5,643 new infections. And that's it for this week.
And next week, I'll be talking to James Bowe, co-founder of new Aussie fintech provider Own Home, which helps Australians buy their own property in this tough market. And I'll be talking to AMP Capital Chief Economist Shane Oliver about the market and economic outlook for 2023. In the meantime, you catch me on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, LinkedIn, and YouTube. And if you want, leave a comment. For the most exclusive access to leading economists and business leaders from around the world, subscribe to Talking Business on the Apple Podcast Store or on my website, leongetler.com. Wishing you all a safe and healthy week and looking forward to bringing Talking Business next week here's a cool fact a crocodile can't stick out its tongue another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states united healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs coming off their parents plan or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig underwritten by golden rule insurance company they offer flexible budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals get more cool facts about united healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com planning for your next trip elevate your travel style with quince quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway like european linen premium luggage options buttery soft italian leather bags and so much more and is all priced at 50 to 80 percent less than similar brands plus Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.